Hello, everybody, and welcome to this fourth episode of The Silver State of Birding. In this episode, Alex and I decided to finally introduce ourselves and talk a little bit about our backgrounds. So join us as we continue to learn how to podcast and check out our new microphones that we decided to use this episode. Don't we sound great? In this episode, we'll talk about what we're observing in these dog days of summer as we gear up for fall migration. And in typical fashion, Alex and I will make wild conjectures about the birds we are seeing and what they're doing. How you doing, Alex? Where where are you at? You, uh, how's how's the weather down in Vegas? Ned, 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 Ned. It is it is really warm over here. Um, it's it's about as warm as I think it can get anywhere on Earth at any given time. At least you know <laughs> this this period of time. Um, it's been like 114, 115 in that in that realm for a yeah. few days. So it's been taxing. It actually rained a little bit in the Henderson area. So like the southeastern corner of the Las Vegas metro area. Um, there's a pretty good amount of rain. So it's pretty cool. Um, but other than that, it's been pretty hot here. Yeah. What about you? How are things up in the Great Basin Desert? Uh, you know, about the same. We hit 108 degrees here in what? Reno on Sunday. That is the highest temperature ever recorded in Reno since they've been keeping uh, records. So, and that is the fourth time Reno has hit that temperature. So, almost set a record, but we tied the record. So, it is brutally hot. I am in summer hibernation mode, going out early, coming in inside, hiding from the heat of the day, taking the dogs for a walk in the evening when it's dark again. It's uh, those dog days of summer are here. <laughs> it's, it's like that yeah it's it's tough it's like you know but you know uh, places in the north of us they they go through periods of time where there's a lot of snow and there's not a lot of sunlight you know and you just kind of have to do do what it takes at that time with that climate and then over in the east coast especially the southeast there's that period of time where it's just really humid for a couple yeah, where months the, where the temperature and the humidity mm -hmm. are about equal yeah <laughs> Like every place has its upsides. Uh, kind of our downside is this part of the summer, especially hey, the summer. Dry, right. <laughs> uh, what's that? Say that at least, again. At least it's a dry heat, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, I was telling a cashier at, like today or something. Yeah, it was today Um, that I would still rather be here with this type of heat because at least when you're in the shade, as long as you're not moving, you're you're fine. Like you can still tolerate it. Whereas if you're in South Florida, you know, or like Louisiana, somewhere in the southeast in the summer, you could be under the shade. It doesn't matter. Like you're gonna be sweating. You're gonna have to change that shirt in 15 minutes, you yeah. know, if, if you're lucky. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I I prefer it here. I, agree. I hate I hate walking exposed. I really feel for a lot of people that like have to walk a lot more this time of year. Like they don't have a vehicle or like public transportation is not that great because it looks really brutal out there. Yes, it it sure does. That's that is why I'm hiding inside today. <laughs> yeah. Well, so Alex, it's our what our fourth episode, and I was thinking maybe Here it's go to uh, talk about uh talk about us and uh, introduce ourselves to our listeners. You know we. Who, who are you? Where'd you come from? Why are you a biologist? How, how long have you been living in Las Vegas? Yeah, we never really, when we started this, I don't think we really had the intention of, of like diving into that stuff. But I think it is kind of cool at this point just to help 
any listeners uh, kind of better understand who we are. Yeah, and it puts everything like how in our interests, right? Like how we got here. I, yeah. I think that's that was a great thing for you to bring up. And um, yeah, so I've been in Southern Nevada since 2015. I came out here for what I thought would be short term field work and did that in the spring and eventually in the fall as well, even into the winter. Um, the, on the same project for a few years and then kind of bounced around between here and other places, like taking summer work elsewhere and coming back. Um, during that process, I got more and more settled into living here. The, you know, uh, the work was consistent and uh, I enjoy it. I think Las Vegas is actually pretty interesting. There's a lot going on here, lots of interesting people. And it just kind of got a network and, um, more felt more like plugged into this city and it became more apparent that it was not a place that I want that I should treat as a place that I was just going to leave and just don't stay in that mind state of like that mind frame of wanting to meet people. Once I moved out of that and just embraced it, it's been super amazing just to, yeah, just to be here and settle into Las Vegas um, I don't own a home here, you know, that's partially because, well, I can't afford to, but you know, like <laughs> I, I always kind of feel like, um, I, I might want to leave, um, once I feel like I've done my job here, you know, like, uh, and that's to get, get more people connected with nature. Um, mostly doing that with, with, because Red Rock, uh, Audubon has, has given me that opportunity and once I kind of feel like we're we're at a good place, then I'll kind of consider what's next. Um, but I moved from the field work of mostly working with migratory birds. And then later, uh, as the years went on, started to do more work with golden eagle nest surveys and uh, golden eagle use areas and other interesting projects. A lot of them, I'll admit, were super mundane, like there's just a lot of stuff in biology that's not that glorious and it can be incredibly boring and tedious and I did a lot of that too and uh, I still learned a lot during that time but um, it was a yeah just kind of I kind of felt that it was time to move away from that part of biology and try more communication I, I think that there's a huge disconnect between um, what what people that are in the sciences like academically or professionally or they're you know biologists out there i think there's a lot more that we can do to um communicate with the public because i think there's a lot of really interesting uh, information that can be passed along and really help other people understand and and um and and have contact with things that are really interesting and important uh, so like bird conservation or just like being connected to nature like having time outside like the value of that I just felt like it's so clear that that is that can be transformative for a lot of people in a short amount of time. And it would be a conservation strategy for birds and wildlife at, at this time that's really uncertain. It was very compelling to me that like I felt more and more like I could I could do that. Um, and so that's kind of what has got me to where I'm at. Uh, with Red Rock Audubon and I'm uh, and and really like like my own solo project is that I um, that I'm really like figuring this out along the way so there's a lot more that I'm learning but yeah 
it's been it's been amazing um and i've met some of the coolest people in las vegas along the way i meet the coolest people like working in these agencies and i get to see other people that have similar ideas and for similar reasons and they want to do just really good things for people um I get to I get to know those people or like send them emails or like run into them at places now and like we recognize each other and you know get to connect over you know the, whatever brought us there together right um and yeah it's just been super fun cool yeah really yeah, excited uh... to see where it keeps going yeah that's that's funny I've had a very a very similar journey I think we've talked about this before but we're on like con- convergent paths here our paths crossed you know at a sort of midpoint or something along our respective journeys i uh, mm. you know i moved to nevada i spent a season out here in 2015 and like yourself i thought it was going to be a short-term thing just checking it out out here seeing what it was all about before moving on to the next thing and one thing led to another you know here i am was it six seven years later moved moved to reno and started renting a place in 2017 so like yourself, I also do not own a house here. I'm in that sort of semi-permanent state of of roots, but but not roots. And uh, and then yeah, the the science, the research, the field work turned into this motivation to bridge that gap between the data collection and the public, and that realization that you know there's these special places out there that we all love that uh, if we can't convince the masses of their value and not even that we have to convince people but just generate that awareness like it's gonna get paved over and turned into houses you know if we don't have that appreciation for wild spaces there yeah man you you have a like a really human interests are gonna prevail you know that development is gonna happen so our our role here is promoting awareness and that is really uh you know it's it's a real passion of mine to, to connect people to the the wild spaces where we are we're from it's our habitat we're humans with habitat (laughs) yeah yeah totally and and i think you know like you have a really i think there are a couple parts to that which which is really amazing it says a lot about you is like there you have that big picture view and you kind of see that one of the ways that you can uh really help like do things and like be aligned with your values is to go do exactly what you're doing you know it's like uh uniquely suited for you to do like in that big picture so you seem really satisfied with it yeah things just kind of fall into place you know having that having that science background and that ability to communicate with people and make those connections and and then you know this this here podcast effort is a is an extension of of those efforts and i think it really aligns with both of our uh both of our passions priorities and trajectories and it's it's kind of neat how we met along that that sort of transformation that transition where we were both transitioning from uh field work science research into the more outreach public facing positions and now uh yeah and our paths have kind of lined up it's uh it's pretty interesting yeah oh totally that's really well said um yeah for what i think is really cool is that in our friendship you know we've known each other we've been in contact for maybe like a year and a half or so but we've only we only saw each other in person the first time about a year ago and we went to a show i can't remember <laughs> the show that we went to who was that it was primus les claypool primus. yeah, yeah, play, yeah playing yeah. rush uh, yeah tribute yeah. to king's tour <laughs> That's who it was. Yeah, I, I knew nothing about them. I I had heard some of their music, 
if I if I recall this like prior, but I didn't know who it was until they started playing. I was like, okay, yeah, I remember this. Like, <laughs> I can't remember, yeah, really enjoying it, but like, I'm here <laughs> for it. This is fun. Like, this is a really good time, and yeah, it was a good live show. Yeah, yeah but that was a year ago. Yeah, that's that was it was yeah. a year ago. Yeah. Fun. <laughs> so yeah, now yeah. we're both on this on this hectic hectic journey where we're running around spreading our. <laughs> uh spreading our gospel of conservation yeah <laughs> balancing yeah, balancing everything i know uh yeah. i'm sort of bible of birds right <laughs> yes like we're uh, bird crusaders huh <laughs> uh-huh yeah exactly like dis- disciples or something i know i'm uh in between trips here uh tomorrow i'm headed out to colorado for a western field ornithologist conference where they've asked us to talk about our pinion j community mm-hmm. science program so I'll be a opinion J missionary next week. <laughs> Whoa, that's an important job. Oh, yeah. And I think you're you're between trips, huh? You're headed off, just getting back. You're you're all over the place. I have been all over the place. It's been a really busy, but um, really busy. But I think like kind of kind of balanced summer in terms of like getting out and doing some stuff out at here that is also something that I love not related to anything that I do in Southern Nevada. Seeing some family was really nice. And then just like, just seeing things evolve with outreach projects. Yeah. Uh, but I've, I've actually been here for a couple of weeks and I'll be here for just a few more weeks, doing some stuff around town and up in the spring mountains. And then I'm out to Alaska again for three weeks, just in time for the salmon to start running, which is, which is really fun. Oh yeah. That means that the bald eagles and the bear and, the uh the american crows that are no longer called northwestern crows and the ravens they all come down and and they just have a feast it's really fun oh yeah just like the story of the salmon is beautiful but anyway good time of year to be getting out of vegas go on about that yeah it's a good time to be out of here uh but i'll miss some of that um that beginnings of migration we're going to talk about migration later i think but um yeah is it's still an interesting time to be here I'm, i'm learning to enjoy it yeah. Well, you've been getting out birding much while you're while you're in town. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Chasing I, any of those rarities that showed up. There's some fun, some fun, uh, fun recent records down there. Yeah. There, there, there were. There's been some flurries of excitement. Um, well, a lot of yellow-billed cuckoos around, and I actually did get to see one. I was at Henderson Bird Viewing Preserve today, and Jennifer Tobin um, spotted one. Uh, Jennifer's a local birder and spotted one and then told a group that I was with. We went out and we we spotted the bird, like refound it pretty close to where she had it an hour before. And that was cool. Um, it seems like yellow-billed cuckoos are around the Wash and the Virgin River. And if anyone wants to go out there, you know, this is a great year to go listen or or look you're probably only going to hear them if they're around they're really hard to see um and you you really shouldn't tape for them it does disturb them and they're threatened and it's illegal. I think. <laughs> yeah it's it's illegal, it's illegal. <laughs> you don't do that but go out and just you know um just go out there and, and just have a listen and, and uh if you don't hear them you'll hear other cool things there's still a lot singing out there early in the morning things are things are active yeah, um, I had a, I had a cuckoo. I had my second cuckoo on my Las Vegas wash surveys in oh, wow. uh, I think I had it in June. It was uh yeah, it was singing very intermittently from one of my points, but uh 
Then the next round, when I was down there, I had a yellow-breasted chat fly into the top of the, at the same exact survey point, I had a chat fly into the top of the tree, and he gave one of those loud, like, calls, you know, that, what? Yeah. and, and yeah, he just did that. that, and it was like oh. 10, and it was like, yeah, exactly, it was like 10 seconds mm -hmm. before he started going into full song, so I thought I had the cuckoo fly in, I was so excited, uh -huh. there was a cuckoo right above me, and then he starts singing his chat song, and it was you know uh, nice nice to hear but but a great letdown considering what yeah wow say. now that now that you mention it i could totally hear that in my <laughs> you know in my mind it's uh it's sound. that kind of noise they like to mimic feel like mm -hmm. chats have certain calls that they gravitate towards <clears throat> the certain sounds that they like to mimic and that definitely mm -hmm. is right in line with their repertoire <laughs> mm. i wonder <laughs> i wonder what advantage they use that for because i've seen cuckoos get um I've seen them get mobbed by things, right? And so like things do perceive them as a threat. You know, I, I could see them eating nestlings if they're unattended. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. They, yeah. So like songbirds don't like them. And and for those that don't know, cuckoos are not, they're not songbirds, even though they look really similar to them. They're quite, quite different um, taxonomically. And like songbirds really don't like cuckoos. Um, so like, I, I kind of feel like, maybe a chat would be doing it to get a sense of who's around, you know, kind of like uh, Jay would do that mimicking a, a hawk just to kind of get a sense of who's around and paying attention and who can they can exploit or void. Yeah. You know? Yeah, possibly. It's, it's interesting to think about the, the function of that mimicry. I mean, what, what purpose does it serve? Mm. Chats are definitely prolific, prolific mimics. Yeah. 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 Sure. But I mean, in addition to the to the cool regular breeders that are starting to show up, I mean, we had a, a new state bird. We had a varied bunting in mm. Overton. We had our state's mm -hmm. third yellow green vireo. I mean, there's some cool stuff happening yeah. in, in July. It's an interesting time of year for it too. A little, a little early for stuff to be migrating. I, I don't know. Wonder about the monsoons down south. If any of that stuff is uh, making making these Mexican birds move, but. I was, I was kind of surprised yeah. that uh, that varied bunting was a state record, you know? Yeah, considering they're just down in Arizona. And Although not... it is the very southern part of Arizona where they, they creep in, so. Yeah. Yeah, I think you you expect overshoots from time to time, but I don't think that it's like they're hard, really hardwired to make big movements anyway. Like, I think they only just go south of their breeding grounds. Right. Yeah, they're, they're so not very long distance. They're not wired for that, yeah. So... Yeah, I don't overshoot that much, but yeah, you're right. It does really? seem I don't know bizarre. Yeah, I think I think uh yeah. So if if people aren't aware of this, um, somebody had a varied bunting, a pretty you know clear male, which is, is really unique. It flew into a window in Overton, and somebody went outside and realized what they're looking at, or that whatever they had was interesting, and they quickly found out. They took a photo and they put it on the the internets. And then, the, of course, uh, word spread about the very th bunting amongst a bunch of people on a couple different communication lines across different social media platforms, because that's how people communicate these days. <laughs> and um, yeah, so like, I think really the question is, did it get here on its own? Um, because in some places, buntings are are trapped and smuggled. Uh, that's a big issue in Florida uh, especially South Florida, where I come from, like we would find bunting traps out there, people trapping buntings um, mm -hmm. and moving them around. There's a market for that. 
Uh, but is there one for very buntings and like why Overton? That seems like a really random place for this bird to show up. If it was a captive bird, you would expect it in Las Vegas, maybe, but not necessarily out there in that that farmland yeah. uh, area. Like it's just not really the type of place, but like the right habitat, um, kinda. Yeah, no, it's white, but yeah, it is. It is a weird place for it to show. I don't know. It just kind of goes to show. I guess uh, anybody can get a state record, and there's just so mm-hmm. much. So much space in Nevada makes you wonder what else, uh, you know, what's what's striking stuff out there where there's no one to see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Things are just slipping by all the time. Like, I mean, fortunately, that bird survived, too. You know, a window strike is often mm. a fatal experience for a bird. Mm. Yeah. So that yeah it is. Been, uh, quite quite the shame if our state record varied bunting was a mortality. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big killer of birds. Uh, window strikes. Um, yeah. Probably, you know second to like habitat loss and well i guess to habitat loss and free roaming cats and then there's that right well, yeah um, there's you know there's stuff you can do to your here. windows yeah. too to prevent that you can put various designs and decals they make all kinds of bird friendly stickers and things to make your windows uh not not opaque so you can still see through them and enjoy your window but to make them more more mm-hmm. apparent to birds from the outside yeah um, yeah, I've you know I've heard uh, a lot of people say, well, I don't really want something like that on my window, and you know what I'll say is that uh, in recent years, like people have found a lot, like have heard that, and they've made really interesting solutions for that because they know that people don't want to put things on their windows, like they want to be able to look through their windows, not have them be obstructed. Um, that's just the reality. People like windows, you know. Um, yeah, that's why we have them. them. You know, yeah. So. <laughs> uh it's it's a good point you know it's because it's killing a lot of birds is the reason that you you know can might consider it it's a good that's a good reason too but you know i could i see your yes i see your side of it i guess and uh but but in response to that um there are more like creative ways that are like also effective and less obvious on the window itself like some of them are actually kind of cool like these patterns yeah yeah I've and seen it looks good from like the outside looking in and it and they're effective um so you know keep an open mind you know like they're they're out there but they are still expensive like you yep. know always always balancing these now, but... human interests with wildlife interests the yeah never-ending uh never-ending dilemma there yeah i wonder if people could like we should encourage people to you know in their budget like how they budget for the year just like throw in like an extra line for like wildlife management yeah <laughs> yeah i mean as we as our bucks. human population grows our wildlife interactions are only going to increase yeah. in weird and different and unexpected ways mm-hmm. <laughs> just look at the bears in new england and the east coast now i mean they're mm-hmm. knocking on people's back doors they're opening doors they're getting into houses <laughs> dude they're like the velociraptors in the first <laughs> jurassic park yeah classic classic scene <laughs> yeah we all remember it yeah it's like the the iconic scene <laughs> well so we got a new a new state bird uh we yeah, also lost it? it we also lost a state oh, bird. oh yeah yeah we we got yeah. our varied bunting but we lost our well we we merged a bird we lost the pacific slope and the cordilleran and they became the western flycatcher which i think a lot of birders are including myself are celebrating um but we had uh, yeah. the 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 split in 1989, I think mm-hmm. they were split, 
and they had very similar sounding calls, distinct breeding ranges. They were determined to be in reproductive isolation, and the mm. AOS decided to split them into their respective species. And here we are, what, 30 years, 35 years later, and we're circling back on that genetic analysis and realizing there's actually a large uh, integrated zone, and maybe these birds aren't as isolated as we previously thought. You know, this is like, uh, you, you know, like uh, only a couple decades ago, it was really difficult to sequence DNA and do the DNA to DNA hybridization test, right, uh, to see how how well the genetic information from two members of, of two species when combined, like how well they merge and interact. And if they're the less congruent they are together, then the less related they are to the other animal, right? So it's just kind of a way to, to look at that. And now that people are able to do that so easily, it's really changing the ways that people see birds. It's not so much like a superficial appearance and superficial uh, differences in sound, uh, which we should talk about because that's really interesting to the ID of the two birds. Um, it's just kind of changing the game. Like we're able to do a 23andMe. We can order something <laughs> and it gets delivered to our door and we can like sequence our own DNA. And then basically, you know, like some private company can tell us who we're related to. Like that's amazing, but that's going rampant and in uh in biology right now and this is probably this is just going to continue to happen i think um you know we'll probably see a lot of splits because it appears there's a lot more diversity out there genetically than people um might make it out to be right now uh but i th i think that's that's kind of what i'm hearing and i'm, I'm not a, i'm not that type of like i don't really know much about it um but i think that's that's my sense that that'll keep happening yeah, no, yeah, super interesting. Is, uh, yeah, it's just going to keep improving. And I think I think more splits are likely, but I think like like in this case, lumps possibly too. And mm. cases where we thought things were more different than they actually are. I mean, mm -hmm. there's examples of subspecies that are much more visually distinct than these two flycatchers are. Ooh, like what? Uh, well, I think about the juncos and the being the classic example. Oh. I mean, we all know how I love my Cassiar juncos. Yeah. But you, uh, all you these like juncos more than like most people uh, I know. I got a weird yeah. thing about juncos. Now, what yeah, can I do. do. <laughs> That's cool. Well, you can share with me what you learned. Yeah, I was I was photographing some weird looking juncos recently up in the Carson Range here. Our our quote unquote Oregon juncos are very very pale sided, just a, just a little mm. bit of pink, like just the tiniest bit of wow. pink. Where you know, if I looked at that bird in the winter, it would have been like, yeah, it's a good candidate for a cassiar. But here we are Maybe in the breeding like... season, and they're supposed to be in the Northern Rockies. So, what's what's right, going you're, on? You're like uh. You're like somebody who who's really into gulls. What about <laughs> juncos? <laughs> yep. Oh, gulls too. Don't get me started. <laughs> uh, that one in the bud that's you for sure. Wow. Yeah. Well, well that's, I hope you uh, figured it out. I mentioned I that it was related to the uh, <laughs> our our split was from uh from the AOS supplement our our volunteer body of uh of birders here that sort of create all the rules governing how we identify things. This is a, a formal uh -huh. committee similar to our review committee here that uh, they decide what we can count, what we can say we saw and what we call it. And every year we look forward to their supplement. And so that just came out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and that is how we were, we were notified of this change in names. 
thought they had a, a few other tidbits for us too. A lot of it not super relevant to U.S. and Nevada birding. But the uh, the goshawk was one that is relevant to us because they decided mm -hmm. that the Eurasian form of the previously northern goshawk was uh, sufficiently distinct and in reproductive isolation from the North American form. So we were gifted the American goshawk, and now they have the Eurasian goshawk. And so uh, mm -hmm. basically nothing changes. The The Latin name is different. I can't remember what the what the species name is, but the... Uh, the Eurasian form got the the gentilis epithet, which is what our northern was previously called, Accipiter gentilis. Uh, Atricapillus. That's what our that's what our American goshawk is, which I believe is black capped. I think that's the same epithet as the black capped chickadee. But um, but yeah, so we so we've got the American goshawk, and because of that, it has changed some banding codes. Our, our American mm -hmm. goldfinch is no longer AMGO because that would conflict with the goshawk, which is also AMGO. Ooh, you should you should tell people what uh, that is, the band, what banding codes mm. are, just real quick. Yeah, banding codes, four-letter acronyms for bird species. Typically, the first two letters of the first word and the first two letters of the last word. So as I was just saying, American goldfinch, AMGO. Now American goshawk would be AMGO. Um, but, and this is used as shorthand in a lot of data collection to just speed things up. So when you're banding birds by yourself, you don't have to write out the full species name. You have these four letters you write in all caps and it fits in small spaces and it's quick and efficient and easy as long as you can remember the codes because it can be easy to confuse them as I was just alluding to with our changing codes. So now the, our goshawk mm -hmm. is going to be A-G-O-S and our goldfinch is going to be A-G-O-L. Wow, there are there are a, a series of of rules and systematics for how these banding codes are are developed and yeah, black-throated gray warbler is a fun one, BTYW because of the conflict with the black-throated green warbler. So, yeah, some are really intuitive and obvious and then other ones are not, but there is a whole pattern to it. Yeah, you know, um, I have the Sibley app on my phone. Uh, it's like the, the Sibley Guide to Birds um, in digital form, plus it has vocalizations in it. On that, there are also the uh, alpha codes, those banding codes in there. So that's a good way to just reference them and learn them right away. Or if you need to know one on the fly, then there it is. Just take your phone out and open up the Sibley app. Yeah, it's handy shorthand for birders and a source of confusion for birders as well. So sort of a double-edged sword there. Yeah. Okay. Some, well, some, we lost some one confusion once. Yeah, lost one, gained one. Exactly. Well, you know, the, with those fly catchers, and like, in my experience, you know, it doesn't really seem like you can separate those two species, and now they're they're one. But for the sake of like talking about them before they were lumped uh, into Western flycatcher, there's a Cordilleran flycatcher and, and the uh, Pacific Slope flycatcher they have this widespread range uh, across North America with the Pacific Slope thought to go, you know, only being the one uh, of these species to go into British Columbia and to Alaska. Um, and the Cordilleran is more of like a arid country in the canyons along a stream type of bird. Whereas I think the Pacific Slope is like, you know, tall, 
dense uh, coniferous forest, uh, especially from like California all the way up to Alaska. I think like, yes. Just, I th- like, well, I think that's interesting that habitat difference. I think I think you're right in in like a general sense. I think the microhabitat for both species is very similar. I think they mm-hmm. prefer to use the same like like nesting territory, I guess, and migration habitat and that kind of thing. Like they they nest on banks, typically like ledges, steep slopes, near water, often right next to a waterfall. I think every recording I've ever taken of a Western flycatcher has been mm-hmm. near running water and that has had to be filtered out of the background. And there's and plenty I, of that in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and well, so I wonder about those those tall trees and drier conditions being more a reflection of what's available I, I don't know it's maybe it maybe a chicken and egg situation right it's sort of where the birds are and what's available for them but maybe that's why they are where they are because that's mm-hmm. what they like and that's where they find it mm-hmm. yeah yeah and they have slightly different songs but not that different and some of their calls are exactly the same at least i can't tell them apart um but from what i can tell just from looking up like the differences between them a lot of a lot of reputable people say that uh, a lot of experienced people say that it can't really be done with some of the calls, but there is a call that they'll do mostly on breeding. Some of them will do them on a migration that I thought you could. And even in some reference guides, it says that you can just kind of look for a break between two different notes. And then one that kind of sounds like uh, a similar note, but unbroken where it goes abrupt. It's a short note and it goes abruptly up uh in in pitch it's kind of like a whistle but there's like a little inflection downwards before it does it it kind of makes this little check mark and the, it's like a and then uh kind of like the the whistle you know when somebody gets their fingers and they put it in their lips and they whistle out i can't do it for real so probably probably didn't sound right just now but like there to me there was a subtle difference there and i was like yeah you could totally do it and I noted that, you know, over years here, like I just kind of noticed that um, Pacific Slopes, they're all Westerns now, but birds that I called Pacific Slopes based off of that call and the assumption that that was enough of a difference to tell them apart. Now I don't think that anymore because you told me otherwise, like other things that have come in. But I thought that like those were diagnostic. And in my experience, Pacific Slopes called a lot here and Cordilleran rarely did but theoretically they both be here at the same time in the same habitat. Right. And so you can't. Yeah. I think it's one of those things where, where the call is maybe a little more plastic than had been given credence before. Yeah. There is actually a bit more overlap between those plastic. Tell for uh, yeah yeah sorry uh, plastic variable. Another word for variable used in used when referring to bird sound, the plasticity of a sound. Is yeah. Or like when you're talking about voxes or vases, swifts, yeah some plasticity right yeah yeah some plasticity <laughs> in uh, nomenclature there <laughs> it's a french name it's vo <laughs> yeah. sorry, sorry to take the conversation oh what yeah no it? no but but no i think those pacific slope uh cordier and flycatcher calls are sometimes i think i can totally tell them apart sometimes i hear a bird and like that is a two-parted whistle like yes that is you know now i can't remember which is supposed to be which but one is supposed to be obviously two-parted one is supposed to slide between those notes with less of an obvious break and sometimes that sounded really obvious to me, and sometimes it didn't. Mm. And uh, and I guess you can tell here that I've never given much credence to memorizing that and committing it to to memory for field use. So I have I have always called them Western flycatchers, no matter where I am, as just a 
a stubborn point of just me being stubborn. <laughs> You're gonna learn a lot, a lot more about them soon at the AOS. Yes. <laughs> yeah, like I think the spectrogram analysis is super interesting. I think we can learn a lot about birds from recordings. Mm. I think it's really, really cool that technology is improving. Access to recordings is improving. I mean, I could take recordings of birds with my cell phone and come back and pop them on the computer, generate a spectrogram and look at that sound and have a better idea of what mm. I just detected than I did when I was in the field. Uh, I, a question just came to me. I want to know your answers here. Like what just pops into your head. You don't have to think about it too much, but like <clears throat> birds with plasticity to their song, it can be so noticeable that like, even in locations in the same sort of like region, you can tell differences, right? Like, so across Clark County, for example, where I am, like, it's a relatively big area, but in terms of like what you might expect amongst like bird populations that are across that that uh, county, like you expect them to sound pretty similar to your ear. Like there's some nuances that they hear that we can't, but it would sound really similar to your ear, but there's some species that like, as you move along and it the same area or like same size as Clark County, um, you're going to hear huge differences in like songs amongst uh, the same species. So um, back, back in Florida, I remember like Cardinals and common yellow throats uh tohis like eastern tohi they have over there i wouldn't be surprised if if spotted tohi is like equally the same over, out here like in terms of plasticity it seems like it they are um, for sure yeah like anyway what what are your answers what's the what's the question oh sorry didn't ask <laughs> the question after all that <laughs> uh, you, you were describing a situation um, yeah <laughs> sorry i want to know which which birds you think are the top uh, top songbirds in, in Nevada that have that plasticity to them. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I like this. I like this. Uh, first thing comes to mind is lazuli bunting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Little jerks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I suspected when I first moved out here before I got the field guide and then confirmed when I did get the field guide, uh, Nathan Piplow's Peterson guide to bird vocalizations of Western North America fantastic book every birder should have it it's an amazing resource yeah, it's very um, good and nathan's a great he's a sound whiz he is an absolute genius on on bird song it's very very impressive that book but uh in in that book he he uh, asserts that lazuli and some indigo bunting songs are actually indecipherable by ear that they actually have so much overlap that they can sing the same songs no wonder they hybridize so often yeah like, exactly like overlap like yeah like, mm, like a female's like mm, you sound good to me yeah, <laughs> so even if it's not the same species you sound like the same species and that's yeah incredibly important in bird song like that's very persuasive to breeding so to sound exactly yeah. the same yeah yeah i mean when i was yeah, first hybrids. yeah first learning bird song out here like lazuli was sort of my western analog to indigo and then when more and more indigo started showing up, I was like, well, we just have, if I don't see the bird, I'm just calling it lazuli slash indigo. I'm calling it bunting spa. I've been mm-hmm. fooled too many times. Yeah, um, no, that's, that's a really good one. That deserves to be on, on that list. Yeah, that's, okay. that's my number one, my number one candidate for, for plasticity and, and well, confusion, but there's a number of others, like, like you mentioned the spotted toey for sure. They sound mm-hmm. They don't use intro notes up here in Northwestern Nevada. They sing right. trill. It's just, just yeah, yeah, that's it. That's all you got. And it goes up in a, in like pitch along the way. 
yeah it's like a and it's very just like a staccato like a machine gun fire it's just very rapid very dry very forceful and it's just that short trill all the tohis are like that yeah they they do they all have that similar dry forceful trill but and it's like an element of it right like you know you travel further east into central nevada and the spotted toeys in the spring mountains and down south sing like this too where they have those intro notes they do bop bop trill and it's mm. uh, a little more stereotyped i don't think i would ever call the spotted toey song a stereotyped song and by that i mean the opposite of plastic like the same every time i think mm-hmm. a yellow warbler is a good example of a stereotyped song where it's the same over and over very constant mm-hmm. um, but i've heard some spotted toeys do some really weird songs and i have used my uh, my cell phone to record some very interesting spotted toey songs so I think they're very plastic, and I think uh, Buick's Ren is another notable mention. I mean, they're just a difficult uh, vocalist in general. I mean, if you if you have a funny sound when you're out birding in Buick's Ren habitat, it's probably a Buick's Ren. It's sort of my my approach to it with just their weird calls. Uh, but in terms of the song plasticity and, and dialects even, they seem to have more bells and whistles and intro notes going on as I travel south. So the Buick's Renz I detect around Las Vegas and the riparian areas seem to have these very complex songs that can be mm-hmm. very multi-parted. And the the ones up here in northern Nevada tend to be a little simpler and more two-parted, where it's more of a simple, like, I think of it as like an excited inhale for their mm-hmm. intro notes, like a, mm-hmm. and then they just outburst into that rich telephone-like ringing sound of a trill. But but down yeah. south, I feel like there's a lot more ups and downs and slides so, and slurs. So well described, man. So you obviously spent a lot of time out there listening. <laughs> That's so well described. Um, what do you think? You got any uh, any fun plastic songbirds? I mean, there's a ton of them that sound. Yeah, so I was different. just well, I was just thinking about the sparrows in general. As we were talking about the towhees, I was you know thinking, well, all towhees are like that. Green-tailed towhee, uh, eastern towhee for sure. Canyon towhee is like that. I mean. You yeah. go across their ranges and even across Abert's Towhee and Abert's Towhee has a very narrow range. It kind of is only here and in parts of Arizona and California along the Colorado, like it doesn't have a big range at all. Um, but across that range, like there's a lot of variability, like the birds down here at the Clark County wetlands, like they sound different from the ones up at Floyd Lamb. Um, they've been cut off over time and they probably have their songs adjusting uh, because they're getting more isolated because of the um, the development and like eat, but even then you can hear how different those are. So towhees for sure. I think all sparrows, um, all the New World sparrows, like uh, you know, you hear it in juncos a lot. Juncos fool me quite a bit. Yeah. Um, sometimes they trip me up. Like uh, it sounds more like a chipping sparrow. Totally, chipping sparrows, a chipping sparrow. But um, Zonotrichia, like white crowned and uh, white throated. Uh, Harris is like they all they all sound so different amongst different breeding populations so I don't know I don't know if I really like have a a best answer for you but that's what came to mind yeah no I think I think we hit I think we covered some of the big ones and didn't even get to ranting about fox sparrows and green-tailed toeys oh man my gosh those songs can be really tough to tell apart Uh uh-huh I can see that they like different habitat but they do uh, here around here in, in the Reno area and the Carson range. I have them at the same spot, like mm. singing side by side. And uh, we're fortunate. It's fortunate. Uh, and we have, I know 
we have the thick build subspecies that usually of fox sparrow that has mm-hmm. usually had some mimicry in the song which the other subspecies of fox sparrow don't really do as much um i don't i don't really know that i've heard it for sure but i don't know that i could say that i've never heard oh. it in like the slate colored I, I think they probably would but the thick build is just every iteration of their song ends with a different species call note mm-hmm. and they, they seem to gravitate towards certain species but that helps me distinguish from our green tails and our fox sparrows up here uh, where they, they yeah. often throw a robin squeal or a flicker call or i've heard them do acorn woodpecker house wren I had one starting wow. with a northern roughwing swallow kind of note at the beginning of it last week. That was interesting. Wow, I had no idea that they they did that. Yeah, and I, I only wow. cued into it from trying to separate uh, green tail and fox sparrow songs. Was like, all wow. right, how can I get a handle on these sliding whistles and fast trills and uh-huh. fox sparrows? Usually more rich, and the whistles are usually sweeter and mm-hmm. richer and more full. But when they're singing side by side, I had scratching my head for a while. That's amazing. Wow, you're getting so much time out there. Shout out Nathan Piplow's book helped me help me uh, solidify that a lot. (laughs) Dang, man. Cool. Yeah, you're you're learning all sorts of cool stuff out there. Spending all that time in the wilderness doing surveys. That's very cool. Yeah. Um, what else did you want to talk about? Yeah, what's going on? Well, uh, I was we wanted to talk was, about migration. Yeah, thinking about sort of like this. Uh, well, I, I've got an idea. I like to call it birder bias, sort of the notion mm-hmm. that seeing a bird is good. And mm-hmm. like, I guess, objectively speaking, as a birder, when you see a bird, that's cool. You're excited about it. And so that is good. But thinking about that in the context of out of range species, like the brown pelican that showed up in Ely last summer. Like, what the heck is it doing there? <laughs> it's not brown pelican habitat. Like that bird is probably not doing so good, but no. we get excited to see it because it's, no. you know, the Birds 20th brown pelican in Nevada or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then on the contrary, you have like, uh, and, uh, and this is sort of just a theory, but about this spring's migration where it seemed like there were fewer birds around that perhaps because of this wet spring, wet conditions further south, these birds were well-stocked, well-supplied, good body condition in Mexico. They didn't need to stop in the desert and try to um, refill the tanks. They were able to fuel Mm -hmm. up and blast over the desert, and they didn't have to stop until parts further north. Um, Again, that's just a theory, but sort of the the, um, contrary to the previous situation where where this seeing the bird is not always good, not seeing the bird is not always bad. Um, and so you don't really think about that as much from the birder perspective when you're just trying to see birds. Yeah, yeah. There's Somebody told me one time that what's uh, what's good for the birds is, is bad for the birders. And uh, what's good for the birders is bad for the birds, right? Yeah. Like like in, in terms of like songbird migration and interpreting right migration of songbirds or like other migratory birds yeah like a fallout situation with a storm or bad conditions like then you get to see all the birds and it's exciting but not good for the birds maybe (laughs) it's it's really exciting it's really exciting uh and i i've been in a a couple like uh fallout situations and this is the f word uh everybody if if you don't know this in in birding like fallout because yeah what do you mean explain that um yeah well like a fallout is a really unique event and it's a it's a 
what makes it unique is its scarcity, its rarity. You know how how often it's experienced is very uh, subjective, right? Um, and I think that's that's where there's a lot of like room for misunderstanding or disagreement is is that subjectivity of it is you know this is going to be a event where you have many times the amount of birds that than the average day and you know in a place where you're used to seeing here and there numbers of 10 species of warblers and and maybe one or two species of vireos like all of a sudden you have twice the amount of species and there's dozens of each of those species in a very you know small area so that's a really unique experience and what happened most likely is the weather locally forced birds to stop migration on a night where there was a lot of migration going on and you can think of it as songbirds you know almost hitting an invisible wall in the sky as they're migrating north and they have to put down, they can't go through it. So they put down and where the front of a storm can be and it, that can have moisture, like it can be a rainstorm or thunderstorm, uh, but there's almost always wind associated with it. So really it comes down to wind um, and birds don't like getting rained on or like snowed on either, but uh it really comes down to wind and like a sudden change in wind direction that uh, causes them to have to put down. It's no longer energy useful to continue migration. It's perilous. It's dangerous. Like you're now you're, you don't have a tailwind propelling you forward. You're wasting energy. And now it's not a time to waste your energy. You need the energy. Right. And I don't, I don't know to what level birds are like thinking about that. It's probably just very instinctive, but they drop down. And if you happen to be at that place, it's incredible. Uh, but those birds are probably exhausted. Um, quite a few birds actually probably died and you're not going to really see them. Uh, they get scavenged uh, really quickly. They're just hard to notice. Um, yeah. There's a reason you're able to approach them so closely on foot and get those beautiful mm -hmm. photos of a lawn full of a dozen painted buntings and scarlet tanagers and warblers of 10 species mm -hmm. literally falling out of the sky. Yeah. And, and like the, the way that birders can better interpret this is like, it has a lot to do with what's happening locally. Right. So like what happens where you are, but it also depends on what is going on between you and where the birds just came from and all the changes that happened during that time. So um, it, like when those birds leave, they're flying into favorable conditions until they're not. And so it, it's not just enough to have bad weather. You are, if there's bad weather in the direction that the birds are coming from, then they're going to stop there and you're not going to see them. So exactly. the timing of it like really has to align. Um, and the, the birds basically made, made a miscalculation and they're pretty good at reading the the weather and they're going to take those risks because it is a race to get to the best spot and take the best territory and they hopefully have energy stores to do it and they are incredible and in that they are very determined in this way they're just going to fly off into the night and migrate for as long as they can racing to go to a place so um that's that's going on sort of like propelling the birds forward i lost my train of thought i think but um while talking about um 
fallouts. I know we should circle back, but the reason that it's so contentious, like how people use it. And I think people can just take this a little less seriously. It's like, it's, it's just exciting and interesting when you're in it. Um, but, you know, some people say that there has to be a certain volume of birds in a certain area uh, for it to qualify as a fallout. Whereas, you know, no matter what, it's just going to be so much more than you would have expected to have seen, you know, just like something happened with the weather. Um, and in the West, it doesn't really seem to like the strategy of of leaving when the weather's good where you're coming from and going as far as you can um is like there's less risk involved like you might end up in the desert uh and in, in a valley and like it might be far hard to find resources and water there that's not good for a songbird but there are less consequences than for the birds that fly across the gulf of mexico for example that's when this uh this strategy is extremely important because it really is more of a, a matter of life or death if a bird leaving the Yucatan Peninsula with the intent of flying for the Florida or Alabama coastline or the Texas coast, where it can be really exciting for this reason, for those birds leaving, they have to be really sure um, by their calculation, however they do it, reading weather and maybe pressure somehow, um, they they have to be sure that they're going to make it to the coastline because if not, then they're going to be, you know, they're going to drown or, or be eaten. They're going to be fish food. Um, so they have to do that. So it's a really important strategy. And so it doesn't really happen that often because the birds are kind of in, in aware of those hazards as they're going. Overall, they make it. Otherwise, we wouldn't have birds. <laughs> right. We wouldn't we wouldn't have a podcast. Overall, they figured out this. how to do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so the so it's like what did the birds just fly overhead this last spring and they did really well? Well, we could go back to the weather patterns and check like, or we could look at the, the maps uh, and weather from that time period and see if maybe they had a nice Southern tailwind and there weren't any storms to stop them. Well, that probably means that they made it. We um, could also look at what happens this fall. If we see loads and loads of juveniles coming through, mm, that could be a, a bit of an indicator. Oh, right. Because if there were lots of juveniles around, then that means that there are a lot of adults around to breeding have success. breeding grounds, right? Yeah. And breeding success, right? Like mm -hmm. obviously the adults got there. Um, we just didn't know about it. We assumed yeah. that they hadn't somehow. Yeah. I and, mean, fall migration is usually more, more birdie than spring migration for that reason. But, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, yeah, a little bit of an indicator. Yeah. Well, sit tight folks. You know, this is like that time of year where uh, breeding is kind of wrapping up for our local birds and a lot of other birds aside from some shorebirds haven't really started to come down yet. So it's, it really, it really is a, a tough time of year. Uh, this part it's of the summer just starting though, I've seen a Rufus hummingbird in the Carson mm, you have? range. Yep. Oh, wow. I was walking the dog this morning and I couldn't refine the bird, but I really thought I had a Western tanager in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they're, they're one of the earlier songbird migrants. I remember noticing this last year seeing they western actually come tanagers. down here in july when the cicadas yeah, yeah. start you to come see out them in like low they come from the mountains nearby cottonwoods like what you think of as migration habitat for them yeah you see them in july and that kind of stuff and it's yeah when i first noticed Dude, that we're, we're totally on the same wavelength because i was going to say something like that like yeah yeah is that like get out there because i remember Last year, around this time, somebody found a little blue heron at Henderson. That's right. Preserve. I couldn't remember who that was. And I went out there to find the bird early in the morning because it was so warm. And um, 
really I noted like all the Western tanagers and black-headed grosbeaks around in Henderson Bird Viewing Preserve, and I think this was late July. And uh, I don't think of those birds as being around until September. Right. You know? But yeah, I think what they do is they come down from the mountains after breeding, and they just come feed in the valley. And I think I want, I think the different age classes travel at different times, so it can make the the prog the progression of a species seem more prolonged. Or oh, like I bet the adults leave to right. leave space for their kids to leave them to success because it's right. mostly adults down here, right? Right. Ex yeah, exactly. Oh. Versus juveniles would stay up there longer where it's more ideal, more favorable. There's what they're used to. And then that's so cool. Yeah, right. Wow. Yeah. I'd never made that connection. Yeah. I but yeah. Totally see that. Whoa. Well, yeah. it's a good so. theory. It's a good theory. Right? It's a good theory. Yeah. Yeah. So. Hard, hard to That's say why this is kind of one of the things, one of the reasons this is so fun is like, you just don't know what, yeah, where the topic's going to take us. Right. Yeah, totally. I, I think about a uh, Western Kingbird is another one that's sort of interesting to me because mm -hmm. it seems like there ought to be loads of them breeding on the Las Vegas wash. That seems like prime Western Kingbird habitat. And I don't necessarily think of them as being too sensitive to the heat. I mean, maybe it's the heat. But I notice surges of those guys during spring and fall migration, where I guess they just migrate through there. I guess they really don't breed that much along the mm. Las Vegas wash, but it it seems like they would. But um, yeah, just last they, month I had a like good the, They like parts of, of Vegas, like really open areas. Yeah, open areas next to Cottonwoods. Yeah, they're not. Lot, yeah. 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 And that's bizarre that they're not really over there. Yeah. You just about any other place in the West, and there are a lot of places in the West that look a lot like the Wetlands Park. You know, like yeah. you know, once I get to the Great Plains from coming from the east, I just expect cottonwoods to be somewhere near water. And that I'm if I'm going through the, the Western Great Plains in Colorado or Wyoming, cottonwoods are just like they just you just know what you're in for. And and a kingbird is guaranteed if it's the right time of year for a kingbird to be in north america which is you know the warmer months then they go farther south for the winter but like in those warmer months it's like guaranteed i put my life on a yeah, western you, kingbird being yeah, in that habitat under yeah. almost any circumstance exactly like any cottonwood in the great basin is almost guaranteed <laughs> but not here <laughs> yeah but not las vegas i don't know not here yeah maybe it's the heat i mean weird. i guess it could be the heat but i don't know weird yeah Nighttime low temperatures. I mean, they seem to be pretty tolerant of of high temperatures. And I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think it's that. They're super. Those kingbirds, man. Like, they're hardy. Even when you start going into the tropics, you start to see kingbirds, and it can be like the 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 most tr like the most uh, the most hot day in your life that you've ever experienced, and you're just so uncomfortable, and yeah. you're like sitting in a car or something, driving somewhere on a birding trip, and central south america and you look out the window and you just think there's no way life is out there and there's, there's a tropical kingbird sitting on a wire exactly it's exactly defiance. what i was gonna say you know, just kingbird defiance, on a wire. Like, yeah man they're so impressive yeah yeah mm -hmm. i mean I, when i was uh in colorado last week uh visiting my family my family flew out from the east coast and got to show them rocky mountain national park was cool but uh at the airport there was a family group of western kingbirds they were feeding their feeding their juveniles like right mm -hmm. under the overhang for the ground transportation pickup they're you know they're they're everywhere they're tolerant of heat they're generalists but something about the las vegas wash can support yellow bill cuckoos oh, and southwestern willow flycatchers and 
Western Kingbirds just aren't into it. Yeah. Hey, if there's any grad student out there looking for something. <laughs> boy, have I got the project. Yeah, boy, <laughs> go talk to Ned. He's got, he's got one for you. <laughs> well, I think uh, we might be getting there, Alex. We've been on here for a little while. I think we might be People getting to the awake. end of our hour. Are you still with us? Thank you for your time. We appreciate you. Uh, this has been a lot of fun and uh, we don't really know where we're going to go in them. We kind of have these like rough outlines, things we want to talk about. But um, if there's stuff you like, uh, please let us know. Uh, that really helps us to figure out what uh, other people want to hear about because I love I love talking to Ned. It's It's always great. Usually when we talk, it's for a long time. And it's about this type of stuff. And we just thought we'd record it uh, because we wanted it to uh, just to get out there. We think some of it's interesting and a lot of it's really fun. Um, so that's why we do it. Thank you for your time. Uh, Ned, what do you got? Any closing thoughts? Yeah, just going to emphasize, drop us a line. We're uh, I'm not, I don't really know how all this works, but we're on a lot of podcasting platforms and there's ways to reach out to us. I'm pretty sure that's how that works. So. Oh, tell them, tell them about the microphones. Oh, yeah. Well... Can you hear me now? <laughs> remember when I remembered that setting on Zoom at the very beginning of this episode to mm -hmm. enable our fancy microphones? Yeah, everyone. So <laughs> uh, we we thought we should get real microphones and plug them into our computers to help with the audio because the first one or two episodes, they're pretty crude. We were figuring it out. We thought it was a one-time thing. And then we decided- Turns to, out the third episode got, was pretty crude too. <laughs> yeah. So we got the microphones for uh, the third one. This is the fourth one. And we're all excited. And turns out neither one of us had set it up correctly. So we didn't even use it. We use a computer audio. This is the first time with these mics. Um, uh, <laughs> but the second, the first time actually using them, but we've, we've thought we've used them before. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that just goes to show anyone can make a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If, if we can do it, then you can do it. That's what, that's the message. So, so thanks everyone for tuning in and join us next time while we continue to learn how to use our software. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. Hey, thank you. We'll talk soon. Thanks Peace. everybody. Take care. <laughs>